Hello and welcome once again to episode 115 of Code Completion. We're a group of iOS developers and educators hoping to share what we love most about development, Apple technology, and completing your code. My name is Dimitri and I'll be your host once again for this episode and I'm joined today by my fellow completionist, Spencer. Hey there. So uh, starting off, we have a small correction to share uh, in a segment that I'm uh, calling Deprecation Warning uh, to keep with the theme of uh our our badly named segments um and this has to do with the lpddr5 uh that the most recent macs and now iphones have um and that is with regard to ecc or error correction um we previously were like wondering whether uh ddr5 had like actual error correction so there's no more no longer a need for actual ecc ram you can just use ddr5 ram and that has it built in um and this is useful for things like servers um that are going through memory quite a bit and uh like you'll start noticing if there are some bit flips uh more often than you would on regular consumer uh grade machines or regular use um and the reason why we brought this up is because we both heard that uh, perhaps DDR5 includes uh, ECC uh, and therefore it does not need to be like the specification includes ECC and therefore it does not need to be like fully implemented by uh, the chips themselves. Um, you might be wondering what the LP in right. LP DDR5 stands for and that's low power um, and that's just Apple's uh insistence that their their machines use as little power as possible um and if you don't need to uh give the memory chips as much power as you would otherwise then you can save power overall because that's the thing that always needs to stay alive no matter what um otherwise the computer is essentially off uh even if the cpu is not really doing anything though that said the m1s are basically always running they're like yeah. so so efficient that they never turn off even during sleep um and that is just like the new world we live in so um for for ddr5 uh there are a few different variants of ecc that can be implemented um and specifically for lp ddr5 uh there's like only one that's that's super mandated um and uh we linked to an article that goes over all of these um but the one that lp ddr5 kind of makes the most use of is link ecc um, and this basically means that the communication channel between the CPU, the con memory controller, and finally the actual memory that's on the chip, um, that is error corrected. Uh, so you're not going to get any um, problems from uh, that communication. And that's error corrected because the density is so high and the channels are so wide that you're likely to get some crosstalk between the actual channels. Right. They're not even thinking about cosmic rays uh, bombarding your CPUs um, or your your memory and therefore causing like bit flips. They're just thinking about, hey, what can we do to make sure that the communication between the chip and the CPU um, is as like robust as possible and they have a single bit of error correction uh, per, per request. Um, so that's that's where the ECC part of LPDDR5 really comes in. There are a few other like areas where it can be saved. It can be saved on die or in line with the 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 lanes, uh, the access lanes. But 
that is not something that is like always implemented. Um, I have learned. So uh, when you see LPDDR5, it's not the same thing as ECC RAM, um, even though uh, we might have been led to believe that because we said it on on a podcast. Uh, So uh, yes, it's it's way more complicated than that. Um, I just wanted to like put this public announcement out there that uh (laughs) we were like spreading nonsense um and just understand that it's more complicated and if you really really care you better really really understand what on earth is going on and i hardly do so um i'm just gonna leave it at that (laughs) um does that article mention anything about like just normal ddr5 um actually using ecc or is it just the lp ddr5 that kind of doesn't didn't i just mention that i hardly understand no i'm just kidding uh okay so ddr5 <laughs> uh ddr5 does have uh the opportunities to um to actually encode this but it's only really part of a standard rather than part of an implementation necessity like if you only have no. two gigabytes of ram there's no real need to have error correction because the rate at which you'll have an error is relatively low. But once sure. you start having 100 gigabytes of RAM, then that that rate is the same and you just multiplied 2 by uh, 50. So you just 50, multiplied yeah. your chances significantly. Um, so that's where that's where it becomes like necessary. And it seems, um, and I'm, I will probably follow up on this in a future episode, more content, yay. Um, but it seems that it's, it depends on who is implementing the RAM and who is implementing the memory controller and who is implementing the CPU to really choose to use any of these features. Um, the only one that's kind of necessary due to the high bandwidth is like the communication, um, from the actual like, uh, chip robustness that's completely separate. That said, uh, we usually think about like bit rot on hard drives and stuff like that. Hard drives that have ECC, like on the actual right. disk. Um, like that's just something that they're, they're built to have. So bit rot is actually not something that's like super common to begin with. Um, and that was like one thing that I was super nervous about putting a whole bunch of disks in a raid and using that as like my lifeline yeah. as a backup for everything. Uh, but yeah, bit rot is not super common uh, in general. Um, so that's just something to to keep in mind that it it could happen, but there is there are error correcting codes everywhere. Um, even for like the most mundane things like CDs, you can poke a a searing hot piece of metal through a CD and make a nice clean hole that you can see through, and the CD will be fine. Uh, like it's that's made nuts. to withstand uh, that kind of damage. Uh, so. Yeah, it's already uh, it in the center though. Uh, no, that one that one is intentional. I'm talking about like oh, extra oh, okay. holes. <laughs> oh, I see. Um, like you know, a hole to like perhaps hang the CD by like a fishing line as like a a bird distractor. Like that CD will probably still play, uh, which is uh. kind of insane. Um, but yeah, I'm sure I'm sure that the RAM itself, due to like the density of the actual yeah. bits on the chip, probably does have error correction. But it's probably like for one bit, like like I mentioned for not, the the link. It's not like a more robust traditional uh, solution. ECC, yeah. It's not like a yeah traditional ECC like DDR like you could get in like DDR three and DDR four or whatever mm-hmm. 
for like and that that's implemented by like literally having more chips to compensate Mm -hmm. for errors um so you're you have parity bits and stuff like that so that is completely separate um from from what this is trying to achieve uh which is just like the bare minimum of uh being able to communicate robustly uh what that one is trying to achieve is hey if there is minor solar activity uh your chips are not going to to suddenly start seeing errors that are going to be significant because again if you have two gigabytes of ram probably not a big deal if you have 200 gigabytes of ram yeah big deal if you have two terabytes of ram definitely a big deal um especially if you're using all that ram if you're not using it then you're never going to notice but um if you are if you are using it then that's a bigger problem that said there are other like layers on top of this cake um and that is when you start encrypting ram uh, then you need error correcting codes because encryption is not at all like forgiving for a one bit error. Um, it will mm-hmm. go ahead and cause the whole block to be like useless. damaged, um, yeah. useless. Yeah. So uh, whenever you have encryption mixed into things, you often also have an additional layer of error correction because you need to be able to decrypt it robustly um, and you can no longer survive a single bit of of difference um depending like sometimes a bit is significant sometimes it's not significant like that's a completely separate thing um like think of a floating point number if you have 0.001 versus 0.000001 uh that might not have a significant like trade-off for uh what you're trying to do but uh for a single bit that's being flipped for something that's encrypted all hell's gone loose at that point because you can't decrypt that block and then subsequent blocks and then it's uh, gone from there so i can definitely imagine that operating systems that implement encrypted ram to uh, protect like various different parts of like the os and then other applications that are running and stuff like that like they probably also have an additional layer of error correction on top of everything that adds a bit of latency but we have super fast computers nowadays so it's yeah. a it's a valid trade-off right yeah Cool. That's, yeah, I mean, sounds like from what you said, it is a big rabbit hole and that's, there's a lot to that and getting into actual computer architecture and trying to figure out how to It's It's less computer architecture and more electrical engineering at this point. (laughs) So that's That's like way out of my wheelhouse. Uh, But I'll probably be back next week to tell you how I was completely wrong telling you about all this encryption nonsense. Um, And uh, turns out nothing is encrypted. It's like uh, checks where the account number is like right there and you can print your own uh and there's like no actual watermarks that anyone checks because take pictures of it with your phone like anyways uh yeah, long story yeah, short yeah, yeah. The, our whole our whole like planet is doomed <laughs> to to evil people doing evil things anyways so uh at the end of the day uh, does it really all even matter um i know i uh as an aside i got an email i showed this to dimitri and, and like fernando and stuff but i uh I got an email for like a, a city building account that I had to make for my basement. Um, and it said, here's your password. Click this link to change the, the um, change your password. And it was in an email. I was like, oh, okay, whatever. It's, it's a temporary password. I'll change it. I changed the password. And then it sends me another email that says, here's your, your, your email address. Here's your new password. I was like, no, dude. <laughs> So, uh, my bank I, account I, password is leaked. 
That's no, no. Part. I mean, when it was you're dumb just like a safari to, to reuse no. the same password, and then they really, they really like make you realize what you've done with your life. <laughs> I mean, it was just like a Safari randomly generated password, but I was like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. Like, yeah. Anyway, I think it's just like a local company, but I was seriously considering like calling them and be like, please don't do this. This is terrible. <laughs> so yeah, nothing is safe. <laughs> nothing is safe at all that said they were probably balancing like does it matter if our customer accounts get hacked probably not um and yeah. is it worth the customer support headache that we don't need to deal with now since we just email everyone our, their passwords anyways uh yeah probably everything's fine yeah my first thought was like this is probably for just like old people that don't know how to use emails and stuff and they're just like here's your password don't contact us type of thing so i don't know Still a bummer. Yeah. Uh, talking about things that are, are not bummers, uh, we were also talking uh, last week about uh, Async Await making its way like deeper down uh, into the Neo uh, like infrastructure for non-blocking yeah. I.O. Uh, and Swift applications. Um, and there is, uh, as, as we hoped there would be, a proposal on the Swift Evolution um, blog. Is it really a blog at this point? Uh, but the Swift Evolution system, uh, there is a proposal for something called discarding task groups. Um, and this is essentially there to make it possible to use async await with uh, sockets and things like that. Yeah. So like if you have something that's sort of going to be infinitely just grabbing data, um, like their example is if you have a task group, uh, the task group just kind of holds on to all of the results over and over mm -hmm. and over again until it finishes. But if you have a task group that doesn't finish, then uh, you're going to run out of memory eventually, assuming that you've run it long enough and the data mm -hmm. that you have is is big enough. So this is a cool thing where it will discard the results of the uh, kind of iteration of the of uh, the task every time that it runs. So uh, just sort of like a I guess my, my first comparison, and I'm not sure if this is a great comparison, is kind of like an, using an auto-release pool in a loop, more or less. I don't know if that's yeah. quite... Yeah, the, the child basically stays, along as long, stays alive as long as it needs to, uh, but once the child task is done, it gets cleaned up, and that's that. Yeah. So, super cool. I, I don't know if I would ever have a... I mean, I guess if I'm using sockets, that's a use case, but... Um, probably just fills a gap that needs to be filled that there wasn't a really a great solution for it. And it goes through kind of some of the, let's see, where did it go? Yeah. Like the alternatives, like it talked about making some sort of a task pool and, uh, this, um, this proposal is really well written out and it, it's got a lot of kind of reasoning and, um, alternatives that they kind of considered and how they ended up on, uh, this throwing task group. So it's really cool. Yeah. And it's been put together by the server-side Swift team at Apple. Um, so that's, like, the intended, uh, like, piece that they were missing to fully make uh, Swift Neo, like, operate with async the async await system. As we said last time, it currently has uh, the event loop, um, event loop group. I'm, I'm, like, mistaking the name um i think that's future? what's called no so there's like a group of event loops um there's like an object that owns all of them oh um yeah i don't know 
and it will it will basically create a thread per core on your system um and then all event loops will uh live on one of those cores uh basically so it it kind of manages all of that for you so that way you can just process events and futures and promises on one of those event loops this was all made before swift concurrency and swift concurrency guess what does the same thing except with a different thread group um so right. that is non-ideal and generally because um all your socket stuff will start on the neo thread group um and then as soon as it passes to your high level application it'll need to do a context switch to a different thread on the right. async await uh thread group that said the async await thread group is achieving many of the same goals as the as the swift neo one tries to keep everything on the same thread uh tries to go ahead and minimize the amount of hops that you need by just making everything uh everything thread safe and therefore nothing is holding state um and that makes things more complicated but that's what swift async await is doing uh but it's doing it at the compiler level so uh right. now with swing with swift async await uh all those guarantees are kind of taken care of for you the developer um so you just need to like be willy-nilly hey i want to wait this thing um and that is essentially what swift neo promises and futures were doing when you dispatch or when you um uh flat map out to the right. <laughs> to the uh future uh that's going to happen for that um results that you're waiting for um so currently we have this kind of hodgepodge in between it's way better from a developer productivity point of view to just use swift async await even though performance took a hit because of that switch um and this is kind of fixing uh fixing the problem by saying okay well now we're going to move swift neo over to async await and things are going to be fast again um and potentially even faster than before because it'll limit the amount of mistakes that people could have made um previously right yeah that's super exciting i'm stoked to try it out i mean i don't really have a good way of like testing my vapor code currently with you know when this gets merged in and everything to like when yeah when it's changed over but overall i'm sure that some people like tim or or whoever have a way to kind of benchmark all of that and it'll be Mm -hmm. interesting to see if they kind of publish like the results of x amount faster uh, not to mention safer so it'll be cool that's exciting. Yep. It says it's an active review until the 29th of December. So probably just people have been on, on vacation and haven't quite updated this. But I'm sure it's uh, going to go through and get merged in. So that's exciting. Yeah, it's already implemented, uh, to say the least. Um, so it's it's just a matter of uh, process and making sure they didn't miss anything for other use cases that might be uh, wanting something very similar but ever so slightly different than this. So we don't have to sure. have a third... Uh, variant of uh these task groups um and yeah it did go through a few iterations like it was originally called task pools and that's what i remembered when i brought it up um that they are working on something it's just not in yet um so this this did get some changes from the community um as a result of them going through the proper channels so um yeah uh i i want to like definitely congratulate the swift server side group for making some good good improvements to swift the language for server-side development um while also like being very open to the community 
like being a part yeah. of that process, right? Um, yeah. I, I was I was looking at because I wanted I wanted to start making another another app that uses Swift Neo um, on the side uh, during my break, and I didn't really get anywhere there. Uh, but I was like going through, and I noticed like, hey. Uh, there's one or two methods that I wrote and contributed to Swift Neo that are just there. Nice. Um, and that was, that was really cool to see there. Uh, so, uh, they are a hundred percent open to people helping out and contributing and getting what you need, right? They are building, they're building tools for everyone to use. And if you have a specific need in mind, then you can go ahead and get that in, um, and, and have that work. So... Um, yeah, I want to. I want to encourage everyone to participate in the the server side Swift uh, ecosystem while it's still young, because you will have a tremendous yeah. amount of say, um, especially if you have a, a very valid use case that just no one had a chance to work on yet, literally. So <laughs> they can get that part in and and have and benefit tremendously from it. Yeah, it's almost like open source works or something. I know. It's uh, Apple should take note. <laughs> maybe uh, open source Swift UI a little bit, and uh, cool. maybe Swift will be used on more platforms as a result of that. But maybe Apple doesn't want that. Um, it, it, it's Probably a not. very interesting uh, dichotomy, right? Because Apple, the company, probably does not want other people using Swift, but Apple, the employees that work there, absolutely do. Um, and yeah, of course. Uh, I think it's it's great for apple the company if more and more people use swift because then apple the company can benefit uh from all of the developer goodwill that they actively burn down um by getting more and more people interested in the language that can only be used on apple platforms right um and they can only do that if it's useful elsewhere um and it'll be one of the few like open source languages that actually does have a steward that knows what they want to do with the language, like moving it forward, um, rather than just like a hodgepodge of open source development, which tends not to work that great. Um, so this is like one of those few cases where you have like a, a big sponsor of something that is open source, uh, that, uh, is unfortunately the driving force. Like you can't really, if they don't want to do something, it's not really going to happen. Uh, but, Fortunately, that means it's going to be more consistent and more properly thought out um, and because there's there's money paying people to to do this as their full-time job. And that's, at the end of the day, what enables it to be high quality. Talking about things that Apple is probably not happy about, um, Samsung has <laughs> new Mac-appropriate displays out. Um, the first one is a 5K monitor that is not made by LG. Um do we know if the panels made by LG? Uh, Very I think well, Samsung makes be. their own their own panels, though, right? They do. Yeah, it's basically Samsung and LG. I think that make most. Yeah, so this is the Viewfinity S9. Um, it it is a a desktop monitor, uh, twenty seven inches and five K, um, and that means that it is appropriate for use for Max because uh, you get all of the pixel density that you're used to. Uh, looking at, um, meaning you can basically run your Mac at Retina and not have a ginormous UI greeting you. Um, it also has a 4K camera that is, I'm just going to call it probably better than the one that chips on the Apple Studio um, <laughs> display. Um, and that's because 
it does not need to do any cropping and probably just like works better it also like pops mm-hmm. up from the bottom of the display which is neat i guess i don't know um, yeah apple you can probably do better i like why did why did they mess this up i don't know uh i'll get into the cameras afterwards but uh it also supports rotation i don't know if that means that it will automatically like sense that you've rotated it and tell the operating system that you've rotated that feels like a very like deep integration that uh samsung probably does not have with apple at the moment um but could be implemented because the pro display xcr does it um so uh like maybe that works um and yeah it seems like all around to be to be a pretty good monitor yeah so we're we're looking at a a verge article and it mentions this um uh smart monitor m8 which ironic or not ironically it just so happens that at my job's um office there is one and it just happens to be on my desk it was just put there and that's the one i use when i'm at the office um it looks almost the exact same it probably is like the same chassis i don't know if um i think the the bufinity s9 is like aluminum or something and i think the other one's plastic i don't know anyway i think it's probably the same four factor except the uh the m8 is a 4k display but it has that camera and so it's it's really cool it is like the camera is just this little kind of cylinder that peeks up from the top but it it's this little um I don't really know how to describe it. It's like this little small plate about the size of your palm and it has some pogo pins on the bottom and it just um, magnets onto the back and it connects with some pogo pins on the back of the display. So if you don't want it there, you can actually just take it off. It's just magnetically held on there and put it on the desk and whatever if you don't want a camera staring at you. Um, And I'd assume that's probably what's going to be on this new Viewfinity uh, S9. Um, I don't think the m8's camera is 4k but it looks to be the exact same sort of form factor and stuff so it's a cool monitor and another thing that i don't think really anyone would care about but it's kind of i guess worth mentioning is it has their samsung's like tizen os so it's basically a smart tv too it's like kind of both a monitor and a tv um, which so is good. probably good for the people who need like a smaller than a 55 inch tv which don't exist anymore um, so here you go. <laughs> Here's 27 yeah. inches. Yeah. So not so, quite as small as the like old a... days, olden days, a 12 inch screen, but, yeah. um, yeah, getting 20 there. inches. You're like a baller. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it looks to be a cool, uh, kind of alternative, I suppose, to the studio display, which is probably kind of what it's going up against. Um, let's see. I think one thing yeah. that uh, we're not, we didn't even mention of, uh, yet yeah, is it will have a mix of I/O, so HDMI, Thunderbolt 4, USB-C, oh. DisplayPort. If it has Thunderbolt 4 pass-through, meaning it has Thunderbolt 4 and then a bus of Thunderbolt 4 behind it, that means you can plug two of these into the same oh. like computer via one cable. Um, and yeah. I think that will be very, very cool to have. Um, you can currently do this with the newer Thunderbolt 4 uh, hubs, um on like any of your Macs you can plug two uh two of the 5K displays uh into that and then your computer can run both of them from one cable um totally possible um so i think if you can do this just daisy chaining the monitors i think they'll be even better for most people nice 
Um, I think the last kind of thing worth mentioning is uh, it has built-in color calibration, and it seems like uh, Samsung has like an app similar to how you know you put your phone up to your Apple TV, and it will like calibrate the screen for you if it's not like a Dolby Vision TV. Um, mm-hmm. It seems like you can also do that with this display as well. So that's cool. I guess if you're, I mean, not that I really care about color calibration too much, but like if you're doing content creation or something, you could probably get a fairly color accurate screen. I don't know what like the um, what coverage of all the cover color gamuts it has. Oh, oh, it says ninety nine percent of the DCI P three. Okay, so pretty good. Yeah. So, yeah, you you always have to be careful with those um, coverage. Uh, numbers because they are always the 2d coverage um so if you're looking at the color ga- a color gamut is a 3d like object right uh, and if you look at it down from the top you get that like bell curve that we're kind of used to seeing um and then the mm. triangle basically um and then you kind of name the coverage by how close the points are to the specs triangle um like it could it could overshoot and then you have 100 percent coverage um, it can undershoot, yeah. and then you have 99% coverage. Um, where this gets finicky is when you stop looking at it from the top and you look at it from the side and from all sides, uh, and it's no longer just a pretty triangle or a pyramid shape. It's this wonky uh, shape as you go from fully illuminated to black, um, and you lose out on certain things like saturation and stuff like that um, mm. as you go down to the blacks, and therefore you no longer get that perfect coverage uh, that they cl- like to claim um especially sure. as things uh go down the gradient so uh that's one thing to consider uh if you are interested in like the color calibration sp- side of things um it is like super way complicated and almost nothing uh gets good coverage anyways so like why actually worry about it but do be <laughs> careful when they like mention oh this is a net 80% of Rec 2020, you know, Rec 2020 is a brand new one that's like way out into the extremes. You're not meant to hit it. It's just, we did, we stopped wanting to make new triangles, uh, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, and mostly in the film industry, uh, they're like, okay, this is getting ridiculous. We have to like come up with new specs all the time. Let's just make a big one mm-hmm. that we're never going to hit, but at the very least we can color correct too. Um, and that'll be, that'll be the ideal, right? If you're okay. outside of a triangle, you sense. pick the closest color there um and that's kind of where the the industry has gone so like always like you can try to attain it and try to reach it um but you're not getting so much more than you think you are once you like pass something like um dcip3 uh which for those that don't know is what like film projectors were showing before we had them in our regular consumer monitors and it is better than rec 20 than Rec. 709, which is right. what HDTVs were specced against, um, which was better than uh, SD605 and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, that's where all this color calibration nonsense comes up. Uh, you care about it when you have two monitors side by side and they have a different white point, <laughs> then you're immediately going to notice. Uh, but until then, if you just have one, uh, you are likely not going to care too much um until you need to get something printed or whatnot and then everything looks way out of whack but then you're already deep in the rabbit hole of uh color correct color correctness anyways um that said back to cameras apple why did you decide to put such a mediocre camera in your display 
and then try to backpedal saying like oh yeah it's not performing as much as as well as we thought but then like didn't actually improve it much like yeah here's what i would do as a new new uh product development at apple you have an ipad it has a nice big screen put good cameras on it like you have excellent cameras on your phone put the good cameras on an ipad let people use that big screen as a mondo viewfinder um and like take advantage of the more expensive device to have excellent cameras on there right uh then you can do really cool stuff and hey now that you have these excellent cameras you can go ahead and put them on your monitors that you also sell two of um or actually i guess just one with cameras um right and that would be totally fine yes i get that you can make a a silly little thing that attaches to the top and you put your phone there and it just like instantly becomes a camera um but like no one wants to do that dude i don't you want to use your phone while you're using your computer (laughs) like that's that's the secret of zoom meetings you have your phone below the camera (laughs) and you can go ahead and seem very interested in what people are talking about while you go ahead and use your phone uh but you can't do that if your phone is your camera because then you're just gonna be looking at it wanting hoping that you can use it while it's recording you um but you can't because it is out of reach um and uh you can't use it because it's connected to the thing so come on what were you saying? I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> I'm kidding. I was on my phone. This week's episode of Code Completion is brought to you by Not Pho. Tired of eating the same old meals time and time again? Consider Vietnamese food. You might already know pho, but there are tons of other flavors specific to Vietnamese cuisine that are sadly not well known around the world. This includes everything from sandwiches like banh mi, rice plates like kom tam, and even the deliciously savory crepes known as banh siu. That's where the app NotPho comes in. It's a free-to-try app dedicated to teaching you more about the wonders behind Vietnamese cuisine, brought to life with colorful and interactive illustrations and animations. Learn how to make many of the classic Vietnamese flavors at home, but even if you don't cook, you'll know how to order like a pro next time you visit your local Vietnamese restaurant. Recently news, version 1.2, which brought a brand new home screen to the app featuring a recipe of the week and a map of Vietnam allowing you to start exploring recipes by region as well. Thanks again to NotPho for sponsoring our show. Search for NotPho, that's N-O-T space P-H-O, on the App Store today to give it a try completely for free. So uh, there is one more monitor that uh, Samsung did come out with, um, and that is the Odyssey Neo G9. Um, And this is significant because it's the only ultra-wide monitor that actually can like support retina resolutions yeah so i have the first version of this monitor um which is just the odyssey g uh, odyssey g9 not the neo g9 they came out with another generation of the 49 inch g9 which is the neo g9 and now they have a bigger 55 inch uh neo or sorry yeah is it 59 57 sorry so mine's 49, um, and Dimitri would never use this in a million years because it's uh, like 5120 by 1440. So it's essentially two 1440p displays. Yeah, he can see pixels. He's got some eagle eyes. Um, so the thing with this is it's basically two 4K TVs set by, side by side. It's 7680 by uh, 4320. So 
yeah, that's oh sorry, seventy six eighty by twenty one sixty. My bad. Um, so it's two twenty one sixty p displays set by side by side. So um, I I mentioned that I got this monitor like on a deal. It was like six hundred dollars off. I think I paid a thousand dollars for it. And I had been searching, like I had been on a like a multi year quest to find out the perfect amount of screen space for me. I had at one time two ultra wide displays, then I had two ultra wide displays and a four K display next to me, and it was too much. Uh, yeah. Anyway, it got to the point where I was like, I'll try this. They call it super ultra wide, which is basically just two displays, you know, fused together with no bezels in between or anything. And I love it. I've been using it for, I don't know, a year and a half, two years or something like that. So um, I was watching the the AMD um, next generation of GPU announcement thing. And they announced this. And I was like, holy crap, this is sweet. So um, I actually just Googled this like a couple days ago and there wasn't anything on it. So uh, when Dimitri sent this out, I was, I was super stoked. But long story short, it's mini led which is super exciting it's a bigger screen higher resolution i don't really care what the price is i will probably buy it because i've kind of um tested this form factor of super ultra wide and i think that it's perfect for me so this will probably be my next monitor uh, even if it is like three thousand dollars and i have to save up some money for it so uh, i'm super excited personally um, I mean, it, it looks like super like gamery on the back and I don't really care about that. I just care about the form factor. Um, it does have, you know, it's got like a high refresh rate and this one that I have is technically 240 Hertz. Uh, I don't use that. I use it. The, excuse me. It does actually work with, um, my MacBook pros variable refresh rate. Uh, so it does go up to 120 with variable refresh rate, rate which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's the perfect monitor in my opinion, and so having it go up to be a little bit bigger and be uh, sort of not really 8K, it's sort of like 4K, super wide 4K. It's a double super 4K, right? For me. It's double 4K. Yeah. Yeah. Like minus double 1440p, this is double 4K. So a fair jump uh, in in resolution for sure. Mm-hmm. And it's mini LED, which mine isn't. Yeah. And you might be wondering, like, uh, if this will even work on Max, because, like, who knows if 8K displays work on Max. Um, but uh, I am pleased to say this has less pixels than the 6K. Uh, uh, what, what do they even call? What does Apple call their 6K display again? It's like the Pro Display X here. Uh, there we go. Yeah, that um, one. That one. Uh, that they still sell at original price, which is a little mind-boggling at this point. Um, <laughs> but apparently they're not refreshing it, uh, or so the rumors claimed last time. So uh, either way, um, this uh, has less pixels than that. So uh, they are kind of lying when they say 8K, like like Spencer mentioned. Oh, yeah. It's just two 4K displays right next to each other. So it's more than 5K, but less than 6K um, at the end of the day. Um, but in a different arrangement and having things ultra wide is actually super useful um, when you have lots of columns of code for instance side by side yeah Um, that works really really nicely uh, especially when you have to have a simulator on screen and this and that Um, and you don't have to have a bezel and in smack in the middle of your screen Um, 
So if you get two of these, then you get a proper 8K display. Yeah, there you um, go. So that's something <laughs> Just buy to, an 8K TV to at consider. That point. Um, but it won't be it won't be curved. Um, true. Oh yeah, it is curved. That is true. Yeah. So, but then uh, you'd have a bezel it, in the middle of that, and then that's like, oh no, <laughs> no good. <laughs> I'm I'm so. trying to avoid bezels. That's the whole reason I like this. Yeah, that that's so. that's one of the the nice things about those curved monitors, especially when uh, you do have something that's so wide. Uh, you actually do start to see color shift depending on like if it's flat and where you're mm-hmm. where you're looking. Um, so it's it's nice for it to be curved and for it to be. Like, visible from every angle. As yeah. long as you were centered, right? As soon as you start doing this, and everything kind of gets a little wonky, I imagine. Color-wise. No, for me, it's, I don't know. It's like an IPS panel, as far as I know. I think mine is. It, um, but it's, the viewing angles are, are great. Like, if I go like this, it doesn't really seem like there's much of a shift. Um, I mean, maybe if I go, like, way out on an angle, but it's pretty good um and mm-hmm. i can imagine that with the mini led versions it, it would only be better yeah so so i guess last thing to mention is it will have display port 2.1 so it's pretty set up to be like run at that whole resolution at, at those high frame rates which is i i'd assume what you need for i mean i guess the whole problem is it's only two 4k displays but you're running it off of one cable it's not like you're plugging two Mm -hmm. cables into the into your mac and into this it's all running through one so i wonder if they need like display stream compression to oh most definitely especially to hit the 240 hertz um oh yeah uh but it's as as we mentioned if it's if it's uh at 120 hertz this is just half of a 8k tv at 120 hertz so that's definitely within the headroom uh if you think about mm. two frames just being two of these um so yeah exciting times uh especially for uh mac users because it seems like uh the people that actually use these um ultra wide displays tend to be the gamers uh and the gamers tend not to care about high resolution because that turns their game yeah. into a mush um, because most most gamer P- gamer GPUs are not made for that. Uh, they're made for <laughs> yeah. a little, something a little less uh, uh, less uh, less high high end. Um, so uh, it's good that these kinds of monitors are starting to come out, which means that GPUs are finally starting to catch up, um, and that means that the chip shortage is finally starting to end. Uh, maybe yes. Uh, so yeah. That might mean we can get uh, a real Mac Pro next year uh, when Apple decides to uncancel uh, their plans that they've canceled, apparently, via rumor. I'm not too sure. So, Spencer, I've got a code completion tip for you. Um, and right. this time, it's anytime you run into an error, uh, you get an error printed out into the log, for instance, right? Um, and many people are very tempted to just copy that into Google and hope to find some results. Um, and most of the time, if you just do that, uh, you've already made a fatal flaw because most error codes, at least for iOS development, start with a hyphen or a minus, uh, right in front of them. And that is Google speak for do not include anything with this error code. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, that is like one of the flaws that, uh, you will, uh, may or may not learn to, 
uh, to work around that might just dissuade you from ever Googling errors ever again, uh, at which point, I'm sorry, the solution is to get rid of the minus and then do that search again, um, and you right. will be much more successful. Uh, the second solution is to go to osstatus.com, and this is a website that yes. has uh, put together almost every error code that like you might run into on Apple platforms, um, and it will categorize them by framework, uh, code and an error message so that way you can see what the error means at the very least like get a hint um, as far as what you're uh, trying to search for so that's like the the easiest way to kind of get started on the on the trip to find out what those error codes mean uh, the second thing that you can try to do is check your local headers for the frameworks you're using for instance if you're using av foundation check the AV Foundation framework for an errors.h file, um, and that will likely spell out a whole bunch of errors. Um, you might also need to check core media, core video, core audio uh, for all the related errors because it's all like one giant framework and they're all uh, unfortunately um, spelled out in different places. Um, so uh, hopefully that can help you if you've ever tried to copy paste errors and then just like given up on society as a result of that action uh, because you found nothing related because a minus kind of sabotaged you from the beginning. Um, yeah. And yeah, I don't know why Apple puts the minus because ironically enough, when you quick look, quick look uh, NS error, uh, the minus is not taken into account and therefore you get like a very large integer uh, because the minus bit is like a most significant oh. one um and like 32 bit or 64 bit and it's just it, you don't even end up with the code at that point when you po an ns error um so it's 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 a uh, overall uh not great that we have negative error codes um but yeah i guess if you're just if you're designing something for your own users maybe don't use negative error codes so then they can be <laughs> successful when they search for stuff um yeah what a concept yeah yeah, the OS status is cool, and I've I've used it before. I, I just t typed in a random code, which was eighty, uh, and it pulled up four different things. So, like as an example, a error code eighty could be a an error in Foundation, and it's something related to NSXML parser, or it could be something related to HomeKit. And so, you probably know which one that is, but you can like I'll usually take that actual error name, like. Uh, HM error code missing entitlement and then Google that and usually get better results if I need to actually go further with trying to figure out what the problem is. So yeah, OS status is awesome. Um, and the irony is that OS status is the original like error codes in Mac OS. Um, and uh, they are something that you can actually look up on the system itself. So OS status comes with utilities that you can pass an OS status integer to, um, and they will give you information about the error uh, that you've run into. Uh, but this feels like lost knowledge uh, in a way, because it's not like anyone knows what the C APIs that um, interact with OS status are anymore. They're just getting these as a result of these much higher level frameworks. Um, and therefore, mm. it's kind of uh, like daunting to even know that you can do that. So I think osstatus.com is a great uh, intermediary in that sense that bridges that gap. And it's easy to remember because you'll oftentimes get an OS status error code in the log yeah. um, that you can then uh, find this way. So Spencer, I hear you've got a new TV. 
that you may want do, to review yes. today? Yes. Is it that one that's me. behind you? It is, yes. Um, ironically, you said 55-inch TVs are dead. This is a 55-inch TV. <laughs> um, I said smaller than 55-inch. Uh, oh, yeah, 55 okay. 55-inch okay. is getting harder and harder to find. Yes, it is. Um, yes, so I... Um, well, kind of a long story. Um, I, I wanted a better TV, and I've kind of really just bought, like, not quite basic level TVs, but like, you know, like the the last TV I bought was a, a Hisense TV that is pretty good. Uh, I, I think it was $600 or something. Um, it was like, it's pretty good. And it's actually just in my bedroom now. I just kind of moved my TVs around. But um, that was the one that was here before. Uh, but this is a Samsung, uh, I think it's S95B, which is it's QD OLED. So I, I kind of jumped on the, the OLED bandwagon as uh, it. I was researching this TV specifically and things about, you know, like OLED burning and everything for probably two weeks before I eventually bought this TV. Um, so it, it was on sale at Best Buy. So I got it for, I think it was $1,400. Um, and, uh, you know, originally when it came out earlier this year, it was like almost 3000 or something. So I thought the price was pretty right. And the, it's kind of like the first generation of QD OLED, um, which is supposed to last a little bit longer and be brighter the way that it uses the, the quantum dots and everything. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a really good TV. The, um, jumping quality is very, very noticeable, um, like it's super vibrant and so vibrant that I had to turn on saturation to try to like actually make it seem accurate and everything. But, um, it's, you know, it's 4k, it can do 120 Hertz on all four HDMI ports, which is cool for when I want to game on it and stuff. So, um, it's been kind of eye opening to see the difference in like a 4k TV from the one that I replaced, which was from like 2017, not the high sense one. I, yeah, I moved TVs around anyway. Um, big difference in that. And, um, it's cool to, I, I don't know. I felt like I was kind of using the F word, the future proofing word, uh, to try to not have to buy another TV for a while. Um, and what I did to kind of sate my fear of um, of burning is I bought it from Best Buy, and it seems like they're about the only place that will actually cover burning uh, if you have a warranty. So I bought a five year warranty with it. So I'm like, this will last me forever, and if it ever gets burning, um, I should be covered. So that was kind of the thing that that put the my worries to rest. But um overall it's good i mean it's a smart tv i don't use any of the samsung smart tv stuff i just stuck my apple tv on it um and i have you know my my computer and stuff on it too so i don't really care about any of those features but um it's quite bright for uh an oled and yeah i don't know what else to say it's a it's a good tv i'm happy with it i'll i will be keeping it i guess is kind of the ultimate thing which was (laughs) not quite certain when i bought it it was like that's a lot of money and i don't know if i'm gonna like the oled if it's gonna have like backlight strobing and everything um nope it it works pretty great there is a little bit of dimming that happens um but it's not super noticeable to me um i guess if you were sensitive to that it might be but i'm really happy with it so i will be keeping it and 
hopefully using it for like the next five years and then replacing it with a new one and then using it for a bunch more time until 8K TVs are like the norm. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I'm still afraid of OLED TVs because of Burnin. Um, I, I did open up, like turn on an old iPhone the other day and I did see the little oh. home indicator <laughs> burned in. Uh, so you do, it does, it does still happen. It's not like, yeah completely out of um out of the woods yet uh that said the tv that you have has a semi new technology in that you know don't have red leds or red oleds blue oleds and green oleds you have a single white oled that is turned in or it might be like a bluish white i think it's uh, that blue, is yeah tur- it's turned into a blue light a red light and a green light via the quantum Mm -hmm. dots filters that are on top of it um which means that the chance of burn-in which was different for different colors um is no longer the case now you have a uniform panel that essentially emits a single color um and then a bunch of filters on top of it to change those colors before you perceive them uh which gives you a lot of the benefits of non-oleds on top of an oled that uh, could possibly burn in but in this case it would burn in a lot more uniformly um, meaning that the whole screen would dim in one direction or another rather than individual portions based on like heavy use or uh, heads up displays and games and stuff like that yeah yeah the um i mean we've got oled in our phones and stuff and so you you notice the contrast ratio there but just comparing it side by side with my other tv that i have the black levels, I mean, it's just like mind blowing. You know, there's like mm-hmm. those um, OLED tests on YouTube and stuff that you can watch. And I was like, with the cherries and stuff. Oh, like that. holy crap! Yeah, it's uh, it's mind blowing when it's in a in a screen that size, and you can really, I mean, you you know what the backlight in a TV looks like, and so not having a backlight there, it's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it is the. It, it is the um wow i forget the burn-in that's scary right but i'm hoping that i've kind of prevented that one with going with the qd oled and two and if it does happen that like the warranty was like four hundred dollars but i was like for a tv like this uh, peace of mind is nice and i'm you know mm-hmm. turning the tv off as soon as i you know do as soon as i'm done and everything i'm you know trying to be quite safe with it but there's always the chance, but I, I hope that Best Buy will honor that warranty and actually <laughs> let me replace it. I, I think the thing is, like, if they're, like, three pixels with Burnin, then you can replace it or whatever. So, we'll see. We may have a an update in, like, episode 300 of Code Completion where they don't honor the warranty and I get salty or something. But for now, uh, it's a great TV. Yeah, on the topic of warranties, um, I don't know if they sold you one via Square Trade. Like it's sold at Best Buy, but the warranty is Maybe. via Square Trade. Um, regardless, be careful with those warranties. Um, they will most definitely honor it, but you have to fight for what you want. Um, sure. So, in my case, I had uh, an aging Vizio P series, which is one of the high end uh, Vizio TVs that cost several thousand dollars. Uh, and they tried to replace it with like the bottom tier Hisense. Oh, um, and I was like, yeah, I'm not okay with that. <laughs> so uh, you will have to go back and forth and prove your point uh, that if you spent a lot of money 
uh, for specific features, you need to make sure that the model that they're trying to replace it with, which they're just going on a spreadsheet of like how to make the most money out of uh, the warranty yeah, replacement. Um, you you can and you should argue for the specific features that you wanted in your original TV that the replacement that they're offering does not have. Um, so do keep that in mind for the eventual time that you need to use your warranty. Um, and also keep in mind that whatever you're getting as a replacement to, uh, that warranty is not going to have a warranty. So any issues that it has after like 90 days, uh, you're stuck with. Sure. So uh, in our yeah. case, there's we got we ended up with a comparable uh, P-series um, from like a later year. Uh, but after about three months, uh, one of the fold LEDs, so one of the backlights, oh. started to dim ever so slightly, um, and it's stayed at that at that um, brightness since. But in like snow scenes, you can definitely see like there's one little muddy color uh, right in the middle of the TV. So uh, we can't do anything about that um, because we got the TV essentially for free um, yeah. due to warranty. Uh, but uh, do keep that in mind when you do. Uh, use those warranties. Um, I do have one Good question for you. Uh, yeah. Is the is the UI of the TV in 4K or is it at 1080 still? No, yeah, it's it's in 4K. Everything looks really okay. sharp. Like I, that was uh, again. I read a ton of reviews and I was doing a bunch of research. Not that I cared about it, but one of the things mm-hmm. is like if you do use the UI, it's great. It looks good and it is responsive. Um, mm-hmm. The the remote is also super cool. Um, it it charges via USB C, and it also has a solar panel on it, so you oh, can just stick this in the sunlight, and I, it will charge forever. I was like, oh, "That's really cool! I don't have to replace batteries." Um, so yeah, just that put was, a sun in your uh, couch, and then if you lose it in the couch, you're good too. There we go. Yeah, I'll put the sun on my couch. Duly noted. Looking forward to hearing how it holds up after several years, and I guess we'll be able to. <laughs> To, to really sing its praises after four years of no burn and you're like this tv still has no burden um yeah and no one will be able to purchase it anymore because it's long long been replaced by future models at that point but uh as always i want to personally thank everyone for listening in this week please be sure to follow us on twitter or mastodon.social at code completion to know when new episodes go live and feel free to tweet at us if there's ever a topic you'd like for us to dig into most importantly, as a small podcast, please be sure to share this with your friends and family. We're also interested in any part of the process of app development. It's your support that enables us to continue doing this, and we hope to grow a healthy community around everything we discuss. Once again, I want to give my thanks to Spencer, who is at Spencer C. Curtis. That's S-P-E-N-C-E-R-C-C-U-R-T-I-S. And uh, for joining me this week, my name once again is Dimitri, and you can find me at Dimitri Buñol. That's C-I-M-I-T-R-I-B-O-U-N-I-O-L. And we'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye.